right, so Stoicism 101. Uh, let me start by giving you a list of questions, brief list of questions that we hopefully will all have a better uh, grasp of by the end of this workshop. It's an ambitious list. What is the meaning of life? What is in my power to do? What does it mean to be mindful? How should I deal with emotions? How should I relate to others? How should I prepare for adversity? And what is my place in the cosmos? I promise the last two slides will answer all these questions. <laughs> what I cannot promise is if you're gonna, that you're going to buy the answer or you're going to be feeling satisfied with the answer. But I will give an answer, a non-trivial answer, I should say. Because I could also say that the answer to all those questions is I don't know or I don't care, right? But those would be trivial answers. Let me start out with a quote um, from Epictetus, just to give you a, a, if you have never read actually the, the Stoics, uh, you're missing out on something because they really had an interesting way of thinking and, and, and writing about things. Now, I should point out that we have very little from the early Stoics. We only have fragments from uh, the people, the Stoics that we will encounter in a minute from the early Stoics. Most of what we have, not all, but most of what we have is from the three great so-called Roman Stoics, uh, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. And uh, one of the nice things about these three is that they, are, they, they clearly, it shows through very clearly through their writing that we're very different kinds of people. So even though they subscribe to the same basic philosophy, of course they emphasize different versions of it and different aspects of it, but from a character perspective, from a personality perspective, they're so different. Uh, it's unbelievable, and it, I like it because it gives you an idea of just how diverse uh, the Stoic, um, uh, I shouldn't, I was about to say community, but as we heard this morning, there wasn't really much of a community, it was just the Stoics uh, were. So I'm going to put a few uh, quotes here and there throughout the, the presentation, just to give you a flavor of what I'm talking about. So one of the things, just briefly uh, speaking, one of the, the, the major differences between uh, among the three characters are that Epictetus was definitely, um, had a very sharp analytical mind. He was very clear about arguments, but he also had a very um, wicked sense of humor or bordering into sarcasm, as you will see in a minute. Uh, Marcus Aurelius was, you know, the brooding type. He just didn't like people at all, which for an emperor is not a good thing, probably. But he had a very strong sense of duty. And so he thought, he kept repeating to himself, you know, the meditations that actually, uh, they were not meant for publication, uh, they were just his personal diary. And they keep repeating to himself, you, know, you, you can get to this, it's, it's, it's okay, you, you, you can do it. You have to do it. You don't like it, but you have to do it. And Seneca, on the other hand, was the worldly one. He was the aristocrat, he was the, the guy that had a lot of money and influence and power. So they're very, very different, and, but he writes incredibly well. He writes you know, in a very compelling way with a lot of style. So here's Epictetus, for instance, one of my favorite quotes. Um, I have to die. If it is now, well then, I die now. If later, then now I will take my lunch, since the hour for lunch has arrived, and dying, I will tend to later. This is his way to, ex to express uh, to one of his students the dichotomy of control. You know, I don't have any control when I'm going to die. I do have control over when a choice, a choice of having lunch or not. And so, you know, if it's happening, happening, and fine. But if it's not happening right now, then I'd rather do something else, and I'm going to do it. So it's, 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 a, it's a sense of humor with a perspective, so to speak. So let me introduce you to the very early Stoics. Uh, the Stoa, so the school was called the Stoa, as Chris uh, said uh, this morning. 
uh, it takes the name, uh, initially actually they were called the Zenonians out of Zeno of Satan, who was the founder of the school. But that didn't last long. Uh, and I don't know whether because Zeno was too modest or you know, to encourage the name or people started disliking him and they said, no, we're not going to call ourselves Zenonian. At any rate, they called themselves, or they were called the Stoics because, actually it wasn't Chris, it was John, so uh, it's being right there. Because it comes from these public places where they were meeting, the Stoa. Right? Uh, so that's one example of a Stoa that's in Athens. Um, it's next to the one actually where Zeno was, was um, initially started teaching um, Stoicism. So Zeno was the founder, Zeno was a, originally a merchant. He arrived in Athens after a shipwreck. He lost everything. And uh, so he was looking for something else to do, basically. And uh, he happened to go to a bookshop and start reading stuff about, you know, from Socrates and Plato and all that. And he told the, the book um, seller, well, this philosophy stuff is kind of cool. What can I get me some, somebody to teach me that? And apparently, allegedly, at that point, Credus, who was a city uh, teacher, was passing by. So the bookseller was like, that, that's the guy. Go. Uh, so Zeno studied, uh, started studying, uh, first under a civic uh, teacher, and then he went to actually two or three other schools, and then eventually felt confident enough to establish his own uh, school, which is what we call now Stoicism. Uh, two uh, heads later, so after, after Zeno, we have Cleantus, uh, who was Zeno's, one of Zeno's students, and then we have Chrysippus. Chrysippus, who is the second guy shown there, uh, made, was so influential in early stories because he wrote a lot of books and he introduced a lot of new ideas, especially in logic and metaphysics and things like that, that um, Diogenes Laertius tells us that uh, the saying developed that had it been not for Chrysippus, there would not have been a Stoic. Meaning that he had such a huge influence that he actually shaped the thinking of Stoics for literally centuries, centuries to come. So that's the so-called early Stoic. There was a, then an intermediate period, uh, which scholars refer to as the middle Stoic. Okay. Yeah. So the question is whether there was there is something. What is it that we have from these, from these people? Uh, there's a lot. There's a good number of fragments, and there's also a lot of quotes of Stoics by other authors uh, that wrote later. Some of whom were sympathetic to Stoicism, some of whom were not sympathetic. So you never know exactly what the context was. Um, but the nice thing is that there is a, a book that it's not available, I think, in English. At least last time I checked, it was not available. Uh, but I found it in German, Spanish, and Italian, of all things, uh, of a, by a German scholar at the beginning of the 20th century who actually translated all of the known fragments from the early Stoics. And that book, I ordered it when I went to Italy last time, and it turned out to be about this thick. Now, of course, that, that's because there's a translation, there's the notes, and there's the, the original text as well. So, but still, what, we do have some idea of what they were writing from quotations or from fragments that they were like. And certainly Seneca um, talks a lot about the early stories. Cicero talks about the early stories. Would you mention, is that something you recommend us to get? Um, not at the beginning, because it's it's actually fairly advanced, it's fairly dense reading. Uh, as I said, it's actually difficult to find uh, in, in, I don't know that there is an English translation for one thing. Is there? Was that? Uh, 
early stoicism did old fragments, something like that. So I wouldn't recommend it as a beginning, for sure. But if you get seriously into stoicism, then you do have you do develop a curiosity and say, what, what the hell were the other people talking about? Right. Any other questions about their early stuff? Yeah. What would I recommend as a beginning? Uh, so, uh, lots of stuff. So, a few that I was asked this question by, is, is Nigel here? No, he's not. Uh, so, Nigel Warburton, the guy that does the Philosophy Podcast, the Philosophy Bites Podcast, which incidentally I highly recommend, it's not about poison, but it's got something like 30 million downloads. It's by far the most popular uh, podcast, philosophy podcast, period. He also does a series called Five Books, and I was asked just a few weeks ago, one of my five favorite books about stoicism. And I said, really, only five? That's the problem. So um, I would say, you know, some of the, of the authors that are here, your know, Bill Irvine's uh, book is one of my favorite. Don uh, left the room, I think, but Don Robertson's book was the very first one that I actually used. Uh, the one in, uh, uh, what is the title of it? I completely forgot now. <coughs> anyway, look up the one, but it certainly has stuff. Uh, so those are good for an introduction, for a beginning. Uh, I would also say read Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and Seneca. There are very, very, very good translations out there in English. Uh, and those are authors that, unlike a lot of other philosophers, are actually approachable directly. You know, I wouldn't say go and read Kant on your own, because you're going to commit suicide, or you're going to think that philosophy is really, really, really boring. Uh, Don's book, uh, Bill's book, and the three original, three big ones of the, the ancient stories, I think are good. Uh, next one to me, a little, little more advanced level is Larry Baker's New Stoicism, which is the, the guy that we heard from. Your My book doesn't exist yet, or at least it exists, but only in a type setting. Um, so it's, it's coming out in May next year. Yeah, you can pre order. Thanks for the plug. Uh, you can go to Amazon and pre order. It's called How to Be a Stoic. So there was a period between the middle store, sorry, the early store, and what we call in, we're going to call the late store. I mean, apparently, scholars of, of stoicism, you know, historians of stoicism, are not particularly imaginative about time periods, but, you know, early, middle, late. Uh, the middle one is interesting because we don't have a lot, actually, of the writings from the middle store. You heard about, uh, yeah, Larry talked about Posidonius this morning, and Posidonius was one of the main stories from the middle uh, period. It's called the middle, middle period because it's actually an interesting transitional period geographically and culturally. Stoicism started in Athens, and it was a Greek invention like all other Hellenistic philosophers. Then, however, Athens made a crucial mistake. Uh, it allied itself uh, with Mithridates against Rome. And Rome beat the crap out of Mithridates, and therefore Rome beat the crap out of Athens. So uh, the general Marius Sulla walked into Athens and destroyed the whole place. Um, that, that was a shame, but it was very good for the rest of us, because what that caused was all the philosophers, it was a diaspora basically of philosophers, they went to other places, Alexandria in Egypt, they went to Rhodes, and most of them, a large number of them, went to Rome. Um, and that's how we get the transition, basically, the transitional stories are the ones that are actually in, hanging around in this period, either in Athens or in Rhodes or in Alexandria or in Rome. And then we get to the late storm, when stories uh, flourished in Rome, uh, 
Uh, I should say in terms of, of, of years, just to, to give you an, an idea of what we're talking about, um, the official birth date of Stoicism, I think it's 301 BCE in Athens. And then we're talking about the move to, uh, through the middle Stoa in about 80, in the 80s, 70s or 80s BCE. And then after that, Stoicism uh, kept uh, existing and flourishing in Rome until at least the second century, more likely the third century or so. Or so. At some point, all Hellenistic philosophy schools uh, died out because of the rise of Christianity. Uh, some of that dying out was kind of organic because Christianity sort of took over. Some of it was not because the Christians literally closed down the philosophy schools. So these are the late Stoics. Uh, in order of temporal appearance, we have Seneca the Younger, uh, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. Now, these are referred to as the Roman Stoics, although Seneca was born in Spain, and Epictetus was born in uh, uh, modern-day Turkey, which at the time was actually part of Greece. Uh, but it's not, a, it's not a bad way to refer to these people, just, just in the same way in which the, the early Stoics were all called Greeks, even though some of them actually came from parts of the early, the ancient world that was not, not technically Greeks. So um, these are the Roman stories. Seneca was a, a, a senator, a advisor to the emperor of Nero. That didn't go very well in the end, but for four or five years, it actually worked remarkably well. Uh, Seneca was, in fact, able to uh, keep Nero under control for the first few years of his reign, and those years are referred to um, by scholars as, you know, sort of a fairly good thriving period for Rome at that time. Then things went down, went south very quickly. And Seneca, as we heard this morning, tried to get out unsuccessfully, uh, and eventually was invited to commit suicide, which was a normal um, modus operandi. Uh, Epictetus was a little later, um, uh, but not much. In fact, Epictetus, I haven't been able to find any direct uh, evidence of this, but Epictetus and Seneca might have actually met because Epictetus was at the court of Nero as a slave uh, for some time. So they, they, it's very possible that they actually met. Uh, but he was younger, uh, then uh, he was freed uh, from slavery um, after, afterwards. He established his own school in Rome, which arrived for a little bit. And then, as we heard also this morning, uh, Diocletian just cleaned up all the Stoics and a lot of other philosophers from Rome because they were getting annoying when we talk about virtue and doing the right thing. It was not, not a good, um, not welcome in the emperor's quarters. And so they were kicked out. Uh, Epictetus went to um, Hierapolis, which is on the northwestern coast of uh, Greece. You can still go and, and see the ruins. There's actually fairly impressive ruins from that, in, in that place. I was there just ago. Uh, and there he re-established his school, which became very popular. Lots of people were coming from Rome, lots of students from Rome, a lot of important uh, people, politicians, sons of politicians, and so on. And he died there, apparently, a fairly right age. Emperors, I'm not sure, I don't know of any. Well, yes, in the case of Marcus Aurelius, yes. Marcus had uh, Stoic teachers. He had actually teachers from different schools, including uh, uh, more than one Stoic teacher. So yeah, occasionally that would happen. Yeah. Marcus uh, makes a lot of the and so forth, but he never 
We don't know, uh, but for sure, both Marcus and Epictetus were aware of Seneca. It's just, it's interesting that they decided not to mention him. Uh, in the case of Epictetus, probably it's more interesting, more pointed, because he was teaching, uh, of course, in a public place, and it's kind of weird that he never actually mentions, as far as we know, because, you know, the discourses are not actually written by Epictetus, they're written by Arian, who was one of the students, and they're based on his notes. So it's possible, of course, that Epictetus did mention Seneca and just like make it. Not necessarily. I mean, Marcus, remember, again, he was running his own diary, and even in Epictetus, he's only mentioned a couple of times, I think, in the Epictetus. So he's not, you know, he wasn't writing a scholarly book or a book for, for, for a student. In the case of Epictetus, it's a little bit more strange, uh, but again, he did not actually write the discourses or the Enchiridion in the manual. And also, remember the other thing that we actually lost half of the discourses. There were originally eight books. So we only know, we only have four of them. So it's very possible. Got a 50% chance that <laughs> something seriously missing from, from that. So that's the late Stoics, and Marcus Aurelius, of course, was the, the, the emperor. Um, he was one of the few examples of a philosopher king. Plato's ambition uh, to actually shape philosopher kings. Okay, so that's about the history. Now, where does Stoicism come from? Because things don't come out, out of nowhere. Uh, ideas don't come out, out of nowhere. There's always precedents, there's always influences, there's always somebody else who said something similar before. In the case of Stoicism, uh, there's a lot of su such influences. One of the major ones, of course, uh, was Socrates and then the Cynics. So Socrates, is a, there's a nice little diagram in a, a blog post that I published not long ago that sort of goes through all the major Hellenistic schools and shows you the relationships, the historical and conceptual relationships among them. But basically, they all go back to one variation or another of Socrates' thought. With the caveat, of course, that we also don't have anything written by Socrates, so it's really Plato that tells us what Socrates was, was thinking. Um, the Stoics were influenced by Socrates, uh, openly so, and by the Cynics, also openly so. Epictetus mentions the Cynics a lot. And uh, the cynics were kind of minimalist uh, philosophers. They were really into not having anything, uh, no, no possessions. For them, virtue was the only thing, and everything else was a destruction. And there was plenty of wonderful stories about the cynics, particularly Diogenes, who is uh, shown in that picture. That's one of the famous stories uh, where Diogenes, who is the one on your right, uh, was so famous that he was visited by Alexander, so-called the Great. And Alexander apparently allegedly went there and he seen the cynic philosopher and he said, you're a great philosopher, what can I do for you? And Diogenes was so not impressed that he said, look at his hand, could you please move away because you're blocking my son. <laughs> so that's how minimalist these people were. I prefer to, to stay like right there with nothing, semi-naked in the sun. Uh, the cynics were called cynics, by the way, because the word means uh, dog-like because they're be of their behavior. They defecated in the streets, they had sex in the streets, they did everything just like animals. Um, because they thought that property was just getting in the way of things. It was just distracting from what's important in life. But there are a lot of other influences on Stoicism. Uh, I mean, we're talking about some of the big names, of course, in ancient philosophy, and that's almost a whole school of ancient philosophy, right? We have Plato, why Plato? Because that's what 
what we know about Socrates comes from Plato. Uh, we have the Aristotelian school, which was one of the dominant schools at the time, and, and the Stoics engaged in a lot of discussions and debates with the Aristotelians. We have the Epicureans. The Epicureans are a particularly frequent target of Epictetus, for instance. He writes two entire chapters of the discourses Arian writes. From now on, I'm just going to say Epictetus writes, but you know that I mean actually Arian's notes. Uh, uh, two entire chapters of discourses about Epicurus, criticizing Epicurus. Uh, there were the skeptics, uh, represented there by Epiro, and then later on the, the Platonist skeptics. So there is a bunch of things. And then notice I also put there Paul, the real founder of Christianity, the guy who really made the whole, the whole thing uh, into a reality. And Paul, like a lot of the early uh, church fathers, were influenced by the Stoics. There, he was very aware of, of the Stoics as well as of the other Hellenistic philosophies. And there's quite a bit of, um, again, back and forth there in terms of sort of reacting to the ideas of the Stoics. In some cases, actually absorbing a lot of the ideas from the Stoics. A lot of the things that we are familiar with in terms of basically early ideas of early Christianity actually comes from Stoicism, or at least have been incorporated into Christianity from. At some point, there was this um, alleged correspondence between Paul and Seneca. They lived at the same time. Uh, turns out that was actually a fake, uh, but it tells you how important the early Christians actually thought Stoicism was. They made up the whole correspondence between Paul and Seneca. And Paul does mention in one of his letters uh, Seneca's brother, who he knew apparently personally. So it's, there are connections there as well. Throughout the centuries, uh, the Stoics influenced a lot of other philosophers and a lot of other thinkers. Even though Stoicism was, like all other Hellenistic schools, was not actually alive after the second, probably third century. Um, meaning that you couldn't go anymore and say, I want to learn Stoicism. Where do I go? Uh, that was impossible anymore. But that doesn't mean that they uh, ceased influencing other thinkers. So these are some of the thinkers that have either incorporated or reacted to um, Stoic thinking. I already mentioned Paul, uh, Augustine, and other church fathers, Boethius and Aquinas. Um, a lot of Renaissance humanists, Giordano Bruno, Thomas More, Erasmus, Montaigne, Francis Bacon, Descartes, Montesquieu, Spinoza especially, uh, existentialism, and even all the way up to neo-Orthodox Protestant theology, which is current, uh, one of the current few versions. So that's, there's a lot of, you do find Stoicism sort of, or Stoic ideas popping up all over the place, and often we don't recognize them unless you're paying attention simply because rarely people say, and I got this from Epictetus, right? but it, they did get it from Epictetus. In my opinion, the current most, uh, closest relatives, so to speak, now, sort of conceptually, of Stoicism, at least that's the way I see it. Yeah, our secular humanism and secular Buddhism. Um, we heard this morning that sort of Stoicism can be thought of, often it's thought of as, as the Western equivalent or the Western response to Buddhism. There are a lot of similarities between the two. There are also a lot of differences. And in fact, one of the other workshops that we're having uh, this afternoon is run by Greg Lopez, and he's going to talk about some of the differences and similarities between Buddhism and Stoicism. Too bad it's full. Um, secular humanism, of course, is a philosophy that developed largely uh, throughout the second half of the 20th century and now in the early part of the 21st century. Uh, people like Paul Kurtz, for instance, um, in the United States. Um, 
and there's actually a good number of secular humanists now in the UK, that also has a lot of ideas that are actually very similar, at least in, in, in good, in positive tension. So here comes another uh, quote. As I said before, interrupt me any, any time you want. Although what, what's, we're getting now to the... Yeah. Yes. No, I can't name a few of the Buddhists. Yeah, oh, the connections. Oh, the connections, yeah. I don't... I don't know that I want to go too far into that because I really don't know much about Buddhism. But I keep them, every time that I post something, on, not every time, a number of times that I post something on my blog about some aspect or another Stoicism, there are some of my readers who are Buddhists. And they say, oh yeah, you find something like this in. So it has to do a lot with uh, the attention to the here and now, uh, detachment uh, from worldly goods, uh, the idea that you can have a path to enlightenment or to virtue. All those are similarities between the two. The way they practice, however, are very different. So the, the, the Buddhist um, type of meditation, for instance, is very different. Very different from the Stoic approach to meditation. Although even there, you need to take it with a grain of salt because major, one of the major differences between Buddhism and, and Stoicism is that Stoicism got cut off, basically, as I said, in the second or third century. And then now we're sort of resuming, like almost 2,000 years later, 1,500 years later. Buddhism, on the other hand, had a continuous, uninterrupted evolution, which means that it really evolved in a branch and a lot of different branches that are overtly religious versions of Buddhism. There are clearly secular versions of Buddhism. There are mixed versions of Buddhism. That's why I think the word Buddhism really should be used in the plural. It's a, it's a family of related uh, philosophies, not just one. Yeah, speakers never do that, right? Yes. Uh, I'll, I'll try to be mindful about doing that. Thank you. Yeah, Stoicism yeah, didn't. So the question was about Stoicism surviving the movement of the Roman Empire to the West. That's right, it did not. Once that uh, Constantine decided to move the bastard, the, to move the, the capital of the empire uh, east, uh, things change dramatically, yes. Uh, was it a prosperous and peaceful period? Um, up to a point, actually, you can make, so that's a good question. Uh, from a social perspective, from a political perspective, what was happening there? Actually, at the beginning, one, one, of the, uh, one of the ideas for why is it that all of a sudden, pretty much in the span of a few decades, a lot of different philosophies during the Hellenistic period arose, it's kind of the opposite. It's because it was a period of a lot of turmoil, where people felt completely out of, things were out of control, you couldn't influence events, there were these big things happening, Alexander the Great comes in and then completely revolutionizes the Greek world, and then the Romans come in and do the same thing. So people felt like they had no control over, over events, and so they, these, many of these philosophies developed as a reaction, as a way to cope with that kind of situation. And something like that can be said for Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism, which originated about three and two or three hundred years before uh, Stoicism, was actually largely also uh, a reaction to a period of turmoil and big changes, um, a period where people were feeling not, that they were not in control of their own lives. So Now, that said, um, when we get to the late Roman Stoicism, however, Marcus was the last of the so-called five good emperors. 
and the five good emperors that period has been described as the, the, the peak of Roman civilization in terms of, you know, it's not that it was a peaceful period because Marcus spent 12 years in the, on, you know, battle, battling the, the northern tribes in, in Germany. But within the empire, there was a lot of stability, there was a lot of prosperity, there was, yes, so that's true. But by that time, those were already dominant philosophies that were well developed at that point. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah, you didn't notice my pro captain uh, hat? That's why I'm wearing this. I've been wearing this thing the whole day. Uh, so I'm trying to make targets. Yeah, atheism. Uh, it's a good question. That's actually one of the recurrent questions about, uh, about sort of, you know, is it a religion? Uh, should it be a religion? What about atheists? Uh, if it's an atheist uh, type of philosophy, then are we excluding the religious people and so on? Or, one of the things that I like a lot about Stoicism, and I, and I say this coming from uh, secular humanism and coming actually from a uh, period of acquaintance first and then rejection of the so-called New Atheists. Uh, one of the things that I like about Stoicism is precisely that it's ecumenical. Uh, you can interpret the logos, which we'll get to in a minute, hopefully, uh, that is this you know, general principle, organizing principle about the universe in a number of ways. If you're an atheist, you can think of it as like Spinoza did or Einstein did, as you know, this is the law of the universe. They're clearly rational because if they were not rational, meaning comprehensible, then we wouldn't have science. If you're, if you're saying that the laws of nature are not in fact logically ordered in some way, then you're basically rejecting the whole idea of science. Then you can stop there and you're fine. Or you can go further like the ancient stories themselves did and think of the universe itself as a living organism essentially. So they were panentheistic modern perspective, uh, that's also fine. Or you can go Christian, and, and you know, there's a number of Christian Stoics that have been throughout, uh, throughout time, and say, no, I interpret the Logos as the God that created everything. I don't think a lot hinges on it because, however, in fact, Marcus Aurelius, the Stoics themselves were clear about this thing, particularly Marcus. You find a lot of passages in the Meditations where he says, well, if it's uh, providence, that's one thing. If it is atoms, it's another thing. If it's a completely chaotic stuff, it's a, so what? You still have to behave in a certain way. You still have to deal with your fellow human beings. You still have to pursue future. In modern philosophical terms, I would say that uh, stoic ethics, which is what most of us are interested in, right? of course, the, for them, ethics, as we'll see, it was not just the study of right and wrong, it was the study of how to live your life. Right? So I think that in modern philosophical terms, you can say that Stoic ethics is underdetermined by uh, metaphysics and theology, meaning that there are underdetermined means that there are a number of different theologies or a number of different metaphysics, positions in metaphysics, that are actually compatible with doing Stoic ethics. Not all of that, so it's not like you can believe whatever the hell you want, but there is a number of, of, of choices and nothing really hinges on those on which choice you go. And so it's a big thing. Is that Well, that's the thing. So they use the word Zeus and God, but also nature, okay, interchangeably. And in fact, in the Seneca, you know, sometimes I'm accused, politely accused, by some people, and I'm sure Donnie's had the same of uh, experience of, oh, no, no, you're just you know, back projecting and you're just interpreting. They really meant to. No, it's very clear. If you actually read Seneca, he says in some passage, 
Zeus or God or nature or whatever you want to call it. So it's, it's not, you know, they, they were very clear about this sort of thing. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't have their own preferences from a theological perspective. Of course, because they did. Everybody has his own theology or metaphysics, right? But it was pretty clear to me that we're actually fairly, they're largely compatible with, with each other. Can we get to that in a little later? Because I have a few slides that are actually addressing directly that question. So why don't we hold on to that? Yeah. Right. So the question is, what about there are some meta-ethical views that seems to be intentional with those like nihilism, for instance? Yeah. But notice you use the word ethical views, not metaphysical. So you can be, uh, uh, so yes, at a meta-ethical level, meaning meta-ethics is the study of systems of ethics. Uh, yes, you either are a virtual ethical person or you are a nihilist or you are a deontologist or you are a utilitarian. You can't be all of those simultaneously. That's, so what I said is not that stoicism is compatible with other ethical worldviews, only that it is compatible with other metaphysical Moral, moral properties such as uh, right, wrong, right, wrong, etc. Right. Um, I'm not a moral realist, um, so I don't think that there is such a thing as a right or wrong written anywhere in the universe. I think that morality is a human invention. That said, it's a very useful human invention, uh, and and it's not just because it's a human invention that doesn't mean it's arbitrary. No, Caligula couldn't be a stoic under my view because he lacks virtue. We'll see, we'll see in a minute what virtue means, and if you don't practice virtue, then you're not a stoic. Right. One more, and then I want to move to the next slide. Yes. Good question. So that's another one of those things that comes up often in Stoic circles discussions, which is, well, but wait a minute. It may very well be that Stoic ethics is compatible with a number of metaphysical positions, but don't you have to believe in some kind of providence that things are arranged in a certain way, as the Stoics did, most of the Stoics did, um, in order to make sense of their philosophy. I think there, there is still some room for maneuvering, not as much as in the previous point, but there is some, some, some room for maneuvering, because it's not very clear what the Stoics themselves meant by, by providence. That, that one also can be interpreted in a number of ways. They certainly didn't mean that there was a God outside of the universe that created, that had a plan for, for everybody and so on and so forth. But they did mean something like, it's because they saw the universe itself as a living organism, it generating its own purpose and structure, and yes, we are all parts of that structure, and therefore there is a function for each one of us, and there is a reason why we're doing all these things. But that reason is not imposed from the outside, it's kind of internally generated. So if you are a pan panentheistic person, then you can deal with that very easily, because then, then you're a classic stoic. If you're not, like I am not, 
I, I reject the idea of, of a providence, even in that reduced uh, sense. To me, the universe just is, and there's no rhyme or reason for why it is, right? Um, so I asked myself that question, well, has that changed the way I actually practice Stoicism? And the answer is not at all, because, again, and you, find, you do find also something very similar in Marcus. So he says, if there is providence, good. If things happen by chance, then what? You still have to be you know, a good person, relate to people, etc., etc. So the same basic tenets still hold, uh, regardless of, again, of your metaphysics. Although that question, the question of providence, is a little more difficult and a little more subtle than the, the general question of, well, do they believe in God or not? So here's another quote from Epictetus, just to keep the... the ancient in mind. Consider what price you sell your integrity, but please, for God's sake, don't sell it cheap. Again, another, you know, another example of a good humorous way of putting something out there. So let me get into some of the nuts and bolts then, um, and introduce one of the stoic metaphors for, for, that explains how they, that explains a lot about how they actually thought about the world. So this is a, the idea of a stoic garden. You'll find similar ideas under the, the uh, heading of stoic egg number of others. But the garden, I think, is the one that works best, at least for me. So the Stoics famously said that if you want to if you want to understand what a good life is, what, how you live your life, that's ethics, the third entry from, you know, the third entry at the bottom. You need to understand two other things. You need to understand logic and you need to understand physics. Although they meant a much broader Thing by those two terms that we mean to them, but I'll get into that in a, in a second. Um, but let me first, before we get into the details, let me first tell you why this strange thing. Because like a modern person looking at something like that would say, what the hell are you talking about? What's ethics got to do with physics, however you intend that word, or with logic, however you intend that word? And the idea was this, they thought that logic it's about sound reasoning. It's about reasoning well. It's about arriving, you know, using your mind, your rational uh, faculty at, the, at your best. And physics was about understanding how the world works in, in basic terms. So the idea was that if you want to live a good life, you have to, first of all, reason well. Because if you don't reason well, then you're going to act irrationally uh, and without purpose without meaning and so on and so forth. So logic is the fence of the garden. It's what keeps the weeds of irrational thinking and irrational behavior out. That's why it's, it's, the, it's the fence. And then physics is the, the, the soil, the stuff that actually gives the nutrients, the, the stuff on which you build the rest of the, gar of, of, the, of the garden. Why? Because how can you possibly figure out a good way to live your life if you don't know what the universe, how the universe works? Because you're part of the universe, right? So you have to understand your place in it in order to figure out what's the best way to live your life. And finally, the fruits of the garden, the flowers and the fruits of the garden, are the ethics of what you really want. So the, the crucial part of Stoic philosophy is the ethics, which is why most of the, of the time these days we teach Stoic ethics, we don't teach physics and logic. Uh, but they thought that in order to get to the ethics, in order to get to the fruits, you have to understand two other things, how the world works and how to reason well about things. So let's take a closer look. 
So Stoic physics, they didn't mean by that word just what we mean today. Don't think particle accelerators and, and you know, quarks and strings and things like that. Um, they thought, they included in that all of what we today would call the natural sciences. So actual physics, but also biology, also you know, anything that deals with how the world actually works. Um, but also things like, uh, they included metaphysics into it and in fact a theology. So again, physics has to do with the general understanding of how the world works. And that comes from natural sciences, metaphysics, and if you believe in God, then theology. Okay. Now, some of the things that the Stoics did believe uh, that are still, I think, pretty much relevant that we can relate to them today is that the universe started with a primordial fire. So do we. We call it the Big Bang. I'm not suggesting that the Stoics uh, had knowledge or somehow intuitions about the Big Bang. It just happens to be the case that we also think that the world started with a big fire or something like what an ancient would have called a big fire. The world is made of matter. This is more important. The, world, the Stoics were materialists. Even when they talked about God and soul and all that sort of stuff, which they did, they very explicitly thought that those were made of matter, of stuff. The soul doesn't survive death. Um, and God is the universe. It is the universe. It's not just embedded in the unit is, right? So it's made of stuff. Uh, they also thought about, they also accept the principle of universal causation. So they thought that things happen for a reason, meaning a cause, not necessarily a plan. Right? If they believed in providence, of course, they did think about a plan, but for a cause. It's all about cause and effect. Precipitous apparently wrote entire books on causality and distinguished different types of and then finally, that the cosmos are organized, I mentioned that already, rationally. That's the idea of a logos. And I, said, I already said that the logos can be interpreted in modern terms in a variety of ways. Yes. <coughs> yes, it's, it was a deterministic view of the world, absolutely. So from a point of view, the typical question after that is, so what about free will? So from a point of view of free will, in modern terms, I think it's fair to say that the Stoics were what we call today compatibilists about free will. That is, they accepted determinism, they accepted universal causality, but they still thought that your decisions are your decisions. You were making still your, your decisions. Yeah. Um, what's the difference between the last point and deism? Well, deism is one, so that was the, the I'm looking at you. Uh, that was, so what's the difference between that and deism? So deism is one particular kind of theology, that, uh, sorry, metaphysics that is compatible with, with this, right? You don't have to be, uh, a deist, because you could be an atheist and say, look, I don't believe in any God organizing principle, it's just the laws of nature organize themselves. They're self-organizing. That's what a lot of physicists will tell you. So you don't need to be a deist. But if you are a deist, you're perfectly fine. This is, this is perfectly compatible with a deist view of the world. Yes. Not necessarily. So the question was, what if, there, if the world is organized rationally, does that mean that doesn't that mean that there is a plan? There, I think the best answer I can give you is that uh, the answer that David Hume gave uh, in the 18th century against the argument from design. Uh, the argument from design is this idea: you know, if you, if you see something that is that looks like it's, it's got a function and its parts are working together and all that, shouldn't you infer that there was somebody who designed it? Right? And Hume said no, because. Uh, the analogy is a poor one. If you see a watch, for sure, why you can reach that conclusion, you're justified in reaching that conclusion, because you know about watches, you know that they're not sort of 
natural processes that don't come out just out of nowhere. They have a very specific function. But if you look at a living organism or at the parts of a living organism, like an eye, an eye for instance, you see that they're actually very messy. They definitely don't fit. If they, if they were designed by an engineer, this guy was a really sloppy guy, kind of engineer. Um, and they seem rather, you said, the result of an organic process, like which you meant, sort of a natural process of self-organization. And that's what most biologists today would say. What about logic? It's still physics. Uh, right, sorry, because there's an interesting and important point there. So one of the things that you hear about uh, Stoics uh, is this refrain, uh, life is to be lived according to, to nature. You should live life according to nature. And first time, so we heard this morning that the Stoics were very much into provoking other people into reacting to what they were saying. So they apparently on purpose used, in fact, uh, Cicero says explicitly in the Finnish book that they do it on purpose to engage people in conversation. They come up with these weird phrases to not only remind themselves of basic precepts of their own philosophy, but also to engage other people. So if I go to somebody who doesn't know anything about Stoicism and I say, you know, we should live according to nature. The first thing that probably comes to mind is, like, so do you mean we should go naked in the forest and hug trees or something like that? Uh, and the answer is no, I don't mean that, but I'm glad you asked, so let me tell you what I actually mean, right? So it's a way to provoke people into sort of getting a, a discussion going as opposed to just a soundbite. So very, very briefly speaking, um, that phrase has been interpreted in a number of ways, but I think the most reasonable way in terms of, especially from a modern historic perspective, but you find that also in the ancient ones, is that we should be living our life taking seriously, so according to, taking seriously the idea that there is a human nature. And particularly, human nature for the Stoics had two fundamental components. We are capable of rationality, capable of reasoning. It's not the same as saying that we are rational. Right? We're capable of it. Uh, most of the time we're not uh, actually doing it, but we're capable, we have the capacity and we are fundamentally social beings. Human beings don't try on their own. They need support of society, family, friends, uh, structures, and so on and so forth. If that's true, so if those are in fact, if you accept that those are the two fundamental components of human nature, rationality and sociability, then it follows, according to the Stoics, that living according to nature means to use, to apply reason to social living, solving problems of how to deal with other people. And you see that very clearly say, in Marcus, for instance, uh, and also in, in the Pinkers. Yeah? So, is this relies on Not necessarily. So the question is whether it relies on the essentialist notion of human nature. At the time, probably, uh, because this, you know, certainly Aristotle, who uh, obviously wasn't a story, but was uh, certainly influencing all the Hellenistic philosophy, uh, um, philosophies, uh, Aristotle was definitely thinking in terms of essence. But we don't anymore. Right? So modern day biologists certainly would reject the idea that there is such a thing as an essence to human nature. But that's not, to not the same thing as to reject the idea of a human nature. Human nature becomes a statistical property of a population. No, the, the good question, so the question was, doesn't that then reduce this to a tautology, that saying that life should be lived according to how life should be lived? 
No, because you can make a choice. You can, there, there are people who would say, well, the hell with human nature, I don't care. Yeah, we're capable of reason, and I'm going to behave in a completely rational way because I feel good that way. Uh, or, you know, yes, we're social animals, but I'm actually much better off uh, on my own, and, and I want to be independent. As we know, there are actually a number of philosophies and political philosophies that are kind of based on that sort of under rejection. So, but yeah, good question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this line is something. The question is whether the word reason is interchangeable with virtue. No, I don't think it is. I mean, there are better scholars than I am and uh, about ancient philosophy here. But no. Yeah. It does translate it into living virtuously, yes. Living, following the four cardinal virtues, which we'll encounter in a, in a, in a few minutes. Uh, because, but, but that doesn't make it exactly equivalent. Just it, mean, it means, well, how do I do that? And the answer to how do I do that is well, you, you practice the virtues, right? So living virtuously can be understood as an answer to the question of well, how do I live? What does it mean to live according to nature? You know, how do I actually do it in practice? Well, practice the virtues. Um, and finally, no, I'm saying family. I'm not about family. Uh, Stoic logic. So the Stoics actually did introduce quite a bit of novelty in logic as we still understand it today. That is, they were great logicians, formal logicians. They, their system of logic actually went fairly far beyond Aristotle's. It was um, known and studied throughout the Middle Ages, but it was actually then reevaluated uh, only by the end of the 19th century where, where Western logicians actually caught up with some of the kinds of things that the Stoics were, were doing. Largely, this has to do with something called propositional logic, which we're not going into. Uh, right now, but um, but that's what they did. They developed the first early um, system of propositional logic. Um, they also, however, understood, as I said, logic more broadly from what we understand, from the way we understand it. Uh, they thought that it was important to achieve knowledge, since knowledge can be achieved through through reason. Uh, then you have to have ways to separate truth from false. So you have to have an epistemology. You have to have a theory of knowledge. And so they developed a theory of knowledge, whether you accept it or not, most people today probably wouldn't accept it. Uh, you know, things have improved in, over the last so, 2,000 years. But the point is that they figured out that what you need to do is not just formal logic, you also need an epistemology. And you also need what today we would call um, sort of cognitive science, an understanding of the human mind and the way it works. Right? Because the human mind is the major tool that makes you, that allows you to be virtuous, and so you want to know how tool actually works. And then finally, in fact, we do get to the ethics, which is all about virtue. Epictetus, again, asked me what the real good in men's case is, and I can only say that it is the right kind of moral character. So this was a fundamental stoic precept, that it's all about moral character. Now, this is true in general of virtue ethics, and some of the stoics, with, a, with um, partial exceptions for one, some of the hellenistic schools. Um, in practice, of course, what that means is that the Stoics recognize four so-called cardinal virtues, and those are practical wisdom, which they call phronesis. Sometimes it's uh, translated as prudence, uh, courage, justice, and temperance. Justice, when I say the word justice, don't think of a general theory of justice like we're used to in modern, uh, modern philosophy, or like John Rawls 
justice or something like that. It's nothing like that. It is the idea that you treat other people in the right way. It's a, it's a personal thing. It's not a general theory, society-wide theory. It's, a, it's all bottom-up. It's not top-down. There's no general theory of how you should behave in society because it's all, um, it all depends on the specific circumstances. Sometimes you act one way, sometimes you act another way, depending on what the circumstances are. Well, how do you know? Well, because you have a moral character. That's what makes you, you have wisdom, you have practical wisdom. That's what makes you, what allows you to figure out how to behave in any particular circumstance. Uh, courage should not be understood only as physical courage. In fact, mostly it is moral courage. There's a number of instances in Seneca and Epictetus where they give examples of courage, and they really are talking about going in battle. They're talking about doing the right thing. The courage to stand up and do the right thing. And temperance, or you know, sort of broadly speaking, the ability to control your impulses, self-control. Now, often people say that these are the four moral virtues, stoic virtues. That's not quite right. These were actually the four higher level categories. Each one of these, in each one of these, there's a long list that Biologist Laertes, for instance, give us of sub-virtues and things like that. I'm just not going to go into, into them. But the four fundamentals are these, yeah. What about pleasure and stiff upper lip and waiters making jokes about stories? I have an answer for that, but in a few minutes. Um, now, by the way, these were imported by Christianity uh, wholesale. The same four fundamental uh, virtues, on top of which, of course, the, uh, Aquinas added, uh, formally added, uh, hope, faith, and what's the third one? And charity. Uh, so, again, this is another example of stoic thinking being sort of wholesale brought into another system and then think, you know, people have on it and, and modify it accordingly. Let me introduce yet another fundamental point, uh, the precept of stoicism, the so-called stoic fork, um, or more broadly known as sort of the dichotomy of control. This is from Enchiridion 1.1, which starts out, uh, with Epictetus saying some things are under our control, other things are not under our control. At which point you might be tempted to respond with a big duh. Uh, except that then he goes on and lists which things in his opinion are under your control and which ones are not, and you'd be surprised by what falls into one category or, or the other. Um, now, let me go back to that. This is the beginning of going back to your question about what about the rest of your life. So what matters for the Stoics is the same thing that mattered for Socrates and the same thing that mattered for the Aristotelians and the same thing that mattered for the Cynics, virtue. What makes for a happy life, or I shouldn't use the word happy because it's bad, so fake and so interpreted in the right way, the eudaimonic life, to use the original or the life of flourishing, or the life that is worth living, the life that you get to the end of your life, you look back and say, yeah, that was worth it. Okay? That's the eudaimonic life. The eudaimonic life depends on the practice of virtue. That's true for all, pretty much, the 
these, these schools that I just mentioned. However, the obvious question is the one that Wader implies, implies that, well, what about the rest of the stuff, like things like a good meal, having a good meal. That's where the Stoics, the Cynics, and the Aristotelians really disagree. Um, and I don't know if I have the right slide. No, so I'm going to tell you more, more or less. The way I think about it is, is, is the Cynics on one end of the spectrum, the Aristotelians on another end of the spectrum, and the Stoics just smack in the middle. The Cynics, as, as we've uh, seen a few minutes ago, said that uh, everything that is not virtue not only doesn't matter, but tends to get in the way. Hence their idea of a minimalist lifestyle. You do find a similar idea in other philosophies and religions. Right? Buddhism does have a ascetic uh, sort of component to it. Because, you know, if you're a Buddhist monk, you really have very few possessions, if any. Uh, you do follow your basically the equivalent of a cynic. Also, during the Middle Ages, especially Christian monks, a lot of Christian uh, monks and hermits and things like that, they follow something very, very similar. This idea that material stuff gets in the way of. Good life, however you want to define the good life. So that's the extreme of on this, this continuum that I'm just trying to draw here in the air. At the other, uh, at the opposite extreme, you find the Aristotelians. So there is Aristotle said that yeah, 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 virtue is important. So that is the most important thing. True, Socrates was right. But um, there are other things that are necessary in order to, to have a eudaimonic life, not just convenient or helpful, necessary. Without them, you're not, you're not going to have a good, a good life. And those things include uh, a certain amount of wealth, health, a certain amount of education, and even a certain amount of good books. So if you're ugly, poor, sick, or ignorant, you're out of luck. Which is one of the reasons why Aristotelianism is often accused of being a sort of elitist kind of philosophy, like aristocratic philosophy. It's like, okay, so I guess that means only the rich guy gets to live a good life. Which would agree probably with what a lot of people think, especially in a city where we have Wall Street, right? Uh, a capitalist, yeah, that's an interesting perspective. So, so we got these two examples, right? These two extremes. On the one hand, deal with no no externals at all. On the other hand, some of the externals are actually necessary. They're not just a good thing to have in general. Here's what I think the Stoics really had a stroke of genius. They knew about both the Cynics and the Aristotelians. Remember, the Stoicism was born later, slightly later, but it was born later. So they knew about both of these things. And they thought, okay, here's another way of thinking about this stuff. Let's stipulate that virtue is, in fact, the only fundamental thing. Without virtue, you do not get a uh, eudaimonic life. And in fact, it is the only thing that is necessary for, to have a eudaimonic life. So, so much, so far, this sounds like cynicism. But you can recover the rest, what they refer to as the indifference. And they use this paradoxical phrasing, right? They call them, they, they, they divided them into preferred indifference and dispreferred indifference. Which, if you look at it again, sort of face value, it's like, what does that mean? How can something be preferred and indifferent? I'll tell you how. It can be that way in this sense. There are some things that, as long as they don't get in the way of your pursuit of virtue, are preferable. And those things are the same that Aristotle would list. Yeah, education is positive. It's a positive thing. Ignorance is a negative thing. It's a dispreferred. Uh, wealth is a positive thing. Uh, poverty is a negative thing. So this dispreferred. But they are in a completely different category 
virtue. And the reason they are in a different category from virtuous is because virtue is always good. You cannot be virtuous and do the wrong thing, meaning acting, having a bad life. If you're virtuous, you have a, a eudaimonic life, period. On the other hand, you can be uh, poor and very virtuous, and you can be rich and be an asshole, right? And the same with health and, and sickness, and the same way with ignorance and education. Just because you're educated and you have a PhD, that doesn't make you a good person. And vice versa, you can have no education whatsoever and be a much better person. So in other words, the second category is logically orthogonal to the first one. You can, anybody, it's a very ecumenical, it's a very uh, sort of general, uh, general applicable philosophy. Anybody can be virtuous, regardless of their circumstances, essentially. That's what the states of the slides are saying. Now, for a while, I, like many other that begin to study stoicism, sort of struggle with this thing. It's like, yeah, I get the point, but I'm not sure how to conceptualize this. And then at some point, I wrote about it in my blog, and one of my readers pointed out to me that this is exactly what economists call lexicographic preferences. A lexicographic reference is the idea that there are certain goods that are not interchangeable because they don't belong to the same category. Uh, you may want goods from category A, and you may want goods from category B, but you're not willing to trade off A goods with B goods. So for instance, my daughter is right here. Right? She's a preferred indifferent. Right? I, I like her. I like her <laughs> to do well and so on. Now, I also like Lamborghinis, the cars, especially the orange ones. Right? So that's also that's also preferred different, but it's also presumably a different kind of category, right? Um, I'm not going to sell my daughter to buy a Lamborghini. This is just not happening. Period. No matter how good the Lamborghini is, and in fact, even no matter how annoying my daughter may be, okay, she's not. But no matter what, I'm just not going to do that. Those two things into two different lexicographical orders of preferences, which, by the way, people are interested in economic theory, poses a big problem for standard economic theory, according to which everything is fungible and everything is tradable. It turns out that it's not, because lots of people would not do that sort of thing. So the way now I think about preferred indifference versus virtue is that virtue is in a different lexicographical category as the preferred and this preferred indifference. Virtue is in category A. It's my daughter. Preferred different and indifference are in category B. They're the, like the Lamborghini. So you can trade between goods in B and be fine, but you're never going to trade a B good with an A good. You just don't want the computer. Yes. This seems to me to be, I want to use the word, a loaded word, but I want to use a neutral, a self centered approach. Can that, can that yeah, it is. So I resources of the world being distributed justly. Yeah. I don't see where that fits into the scheme, that desire. It does fit into the scheme because of the next slide. Oh, sorry. So the question was uh, about, you know, this, this sounds like a pretty damn self-centered kind of philosophy. And it is. And it is in a positive sense. Uh, I'm going to try to explain what the positive sense is in a, in a second. Uh, what about the rest of the world? What if I'm interested in, you know, other people being treated well and that sort of stuff. Uh, here's where another crucial concept, story concept, comes in, and now let me give you the quote from Epictetus as well. Do as Socrates did, never replying to the question of where he was from 
with I'm Athenian or I'm from Corinth, but always I'm a citizen of the world. So the Stoics had this idea, they adopted it from and expanded it greatly from the cynics, this idea of cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism comes, is a word that comes from cynic philosophy, actually. And those, the, the, those circles you're looking at there, uh, which you might not be able to see, discern very clearly, uh, are referred to as hierarchist circles. Hierarchist was one of the uh, late Stoics. And this idea is that, so you start there with the self, the, the smaller circle is, your, is you, uh, mind and body, says, and then the, large, the, the circle outside of that is family, and then it's uh, fellow citizens, and then it's countrymen, and then it's the whole world. And the idea that, that uh, Ariopas and other stories have was that through reason, you naturally you can develop this natural uh, understanding that because we are social beings, you ought to be concerned with what the welfare of other people up to the entire, the entire world. And this is a, an idea that looks a lot, uh, very much like Peter Singer's uh, idea of expanding circles. The only the major difference, other than Peter Singer is in Italian, and we're talking about virtuetics. So we arrive, they, they arrive at the same conclusion, but by very, very different ways. But the only difference is that these are not actually expanding circles, these are contracting circles. What Heracles actually uh, uh, clearly says is that what you should do is to try to bring the circles closer to yourself. So treat others, you know, treat your countrymen as you treat your fellow citizens, treat your fellow citizens as you treat your family, treat your family as you treat yourself. And he actually has practical advice for how to do that. He says that we should go around talking, addressing other people as brother, sister, uncle, and so on and so forth, depending on their age, in order to remind ourselves that they're really, we're all part of the same family. So, in this sense, it is a self-centered philosophy, meaning that, you know, literally, the center is you, right? Um, but it is a self-centered philosophy that actually is concerned with the welfare of everybody else on the planet, which for the time, if you think about it, was a pretty damn uh, you know, novel and, and revolutionary idea. I mean, today we're kind of used to the idea of cosmopolitanism, we kind of use the, 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 the term without even thinking about it. But 2,000 years ago, that was a, that was a big deal. Um, but it is at a foundation of personal philosophy. All Hellenistic philosophies are personal philosophies. They all start, I used the term bottom-up uh, earlier. They all start because, because they're, they're philosophies of personal improvement. They're not, they don't address the question of what should society at large do as a sort of an abstract, from an abstract God's eye view point of view. The, 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 the Greeks and the Romans would not have understood what that means. We tend to think in that way today, arguably, that's not necessarily a good thing, a good way to think about it, because it brings to sort of top-down approaches to then policy, for instance, that are not necessarily the best way to go, and there, you know, we can have a lot of discussions about that. But fundamentally, at a descriptive level, without getting into sort of judgments, at a descriptive level, all the holistic philosophies are personal, meaning that they're meant for personal improvement, for, you know, you will want to become a better person, and it just happens that to become a better person for a stoic means to get to develop concern for other people, among other things. Yeah. Good question. So the question is, what if my daughter, since you are in the center of attention at the moment, uh, what if my daughter were kidnapped and the, the, the 
the ransom was my Lamborghini, would I give up my Lamborghini? The answer is obviously yes. But not because I think they're tradable. It's the kidnappers who were fools who think that those are tradable goods. For me, it's a, it's a no-brainer. Right? Of course I go, I go, I get rid of the Lamborghini. It's fine, I think that it's, that's a cheap bag. They're losing because they could have asked much more. Right? So the fact that I am willing to trade in that direction uh, does not invite what I just said because I'm not going to be willing to buy a Lamborghini by giving up or save my Lamborghini, giving up my daughter. But yes, of course I give up the Lamborghini uh, to improve the situation for, for my daughter. Yes. So it's a, I should say that therefore those are, that's an asymmetrical relationship. You, you give up a B-type good in order to maintain or keep an A uh, or improve on an A-type good because the B-type good is not important in comparison to the A. Yes. So, uh, By the way, sorry, before I, because you asked me to do this before we started, this gentleman has a ticket to sell for tonight's dinner with me. So if you want to go to dinner with me, he's, he's the guy. Yes. Good question. Well, that's an excellent question. So, okay, all this talk about it starts with me, but it expands to the rest of society. Yeah, but what happens when the rest of society's needs come in conflict with my own needs, right? Which, of course, does happen a lot of the time, depending on how you deal with individual problems. So there the answer, I think, typical of all virtual ethical traditions is it depends. Um, and I know it is a, it's a, it's a not it's a, it's a satisfying answer, but I think actually is an important answer because modern modern moral theories such as you know, Kantian style deontology or utilitarianism and things like that think that they have a simple answer to that question. If you're a Kantian deontologist, well, it's about the categorical imperative. If it violates the categorical imperative, that's it, done. You're you're, you're out of line. If you're Utilitarian, well, it depends on the calculus. You don't get the calculus between uh, uh, you know, uh, happiness and, and pain, however you then actually do that. I've never seen a Utilitarian calculator. They sell them on Amazon because I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to do that calculus. But the point is, modern moral philosophies seem to have a simple question, a quantifiable question. It's like, well, it's either this or that, or you can do the calculation. I don't think they work. In fact, many of the objections to both the ontological uh, systems and the Utilitarian system is that it's so easy to come up with counter examples where if you apply the system, you get results that you really don't want. I can give you plenty of things, but you know, we've actually had a meetup recently where we went through some of these, these things. The virtual ethical person says, look, it's all, it's all about local stuff. It all depends on the circumstances. That's why you want to become a moral person, meaning you want to develop your virtues, because developing your virtues is what tells you, in any particular circumstance, well, how do I balance my own needs and my own preferences and so on and so forth with the preferences and needs of the rest of society? You are not supposed to eliminate your preferences. 
You don't, you don't forget about yourself in this, in, in this is not a communist system, uh, essentially, of, 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 of doing things. But it's not a libertarian system either, let's say, or, or a radiant objectivist system either. It's not, you are not the center of the universe, you're just one of many. But because it's a local philosophy, you, it, it is about your own decisions, your own moral character, and the way in which you deal with it. And so the answer is that always going to be, well, it depends. That's a good question. So um, I don't want to go too far afield, but but, that, but it is, let me address this point. So the point is, your experience in the in, in, uh, in duty duty was it surprising, perhaps positive one, right? You saw how many people actually, all the people took seriously their their, their duty, they really wanted to do the right thing, and so forth. Yeah, I've had actually similar experiences myself. And so the question is, oh, where does that come from? Presumably, these people were not Stoics, uh, and they don't, didn't know about the fundamental virtues and all that sort of stuff. Right, they didn't know the theory. But I think there is something to be said. There's actually empirical evidence. Some people, some in the, in the, this morning we heard a, a brief mentioning of positive psychology, which is a sort of somewhat new field within psychology that studies not the, uh, sort of the, the disease mind, if you will, or when people have problems, but, but how people that are normally functioning can improve their, their lives, right? So in, in fact, positive psychologists do use the word eudaimonia a lot. Now, there's a couple of Twitter papers published in the, the positive psychology literature that looked at the universality of the concept of virtue. So they did a bunch of comparisons across cultures, uh, sending questionnaires to a bunch of different people from different, uh, different places. And they asked them to, you know, rate certain ways of thinking and you know, explain how they thought about certain problems and so on and so forth. And it turns out that although uh, different cultures have different emphases on different aspects of what we, we would call virtue, and they also have different numbers of virtue that they can name and can refer to, as it turns out, there are a lot, there's a lot of similarities across the, across the world. And pretty much every culture that they looked at had six fundamental virtues. Everybody pretty much respected or thought it was a good idea to teach their kids. And the six were the Stoic four, plus the sense of transcendence. I forgot what the six means. Damn it! I'll look it up. Um, now, a sense of transcendence, I wouldn't qualify as a virtue. It's a different, to me, it's in a different category. But Stoics, of course, did have something like that. Sense of transcendence is this idea that there is an order to the universe, for instance, and that, that sort of stuff. Oh, and they have humanity. So, humanity meaning 
meaning as you know, some kind of altruism. That's right. And again, the Stoics did have that. That's, that's right there. It's, they call it Bukeiosis, it's, it's their theory of development of, of human morality. So as it turns out, I think the answer to your question is that's what it, that's common among human beings. Well, that's what we teach our kids. That's what that's how we think people should be, and we try to be when we're at our best. We try to be that way. Whether we come at it from a Stoic tradition or a Buddhist tradition or a Christian tradition or whatever, it doesn't really matter in the end, right? As long as as long as you sort of do the right. One more, and I'm going to go to the next slide. Yeah. Having said that, the way people provide counterexample can actually have a philosophy becomes much Right, so the question is, uh, you know, uh, is it good to have a philosophy of life given that the Nazi had a philosophy or, or you know, terrorist organizations have a philosophy and so on and so forth? Ah, sure they do. It's just the wrong philosophy. Or one of many wrong philosophies. Right? So the idea is never, and Bill has written about this in his book, he says that it's the important thing is to develop a philosophy of life, whether it's stoicism or something else. But he didn't say anything goes. Um, there are some philosophies that are essentially equivalent or they're interchangeable. As I said, you know, if, if you're a Buddhist or a historic or a Christian, it matters very little because there are many, they all converge to uh, very similar kinds of actual behaviors when you're actually living in a society and interacting with other people. But other, other philosophies, such as Nazi, the Nazi one, no, those are clearly, in my mind, wrong. So you can have wrong ideas. That would be like saying, Oh, I don't like ideas because some people have wrong ideas. Well, no. Just separate the wrong ideas from, from ideas that work. All I was saying is that there isn't a single idea that works. Right? Like we just heard this morning a talk about the last talk this morning by Jules was about eclecticism. Right? I don't particularly go actually for the eclectic, right? I don't like to mix and match things. But my way of being eclectical is basically being ecumenical. It's like, okay, well, you want to be a Buddhist, go ahead. Uh, you don't have to be a stoic. Or you want to be a Christian, go ahead. You want to be a Nazi, no. Then, then that's where I draw the line, right? So the idea is that there are philosophies that are demonstrably not good for human flourishing, and Nazi certainly is one of them. Okay. Misconceptions about stories. It's one of my favorite characters um, ever, uh, Mr. Spock. Turns out that there, there's a rumor, at least, that uh, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, actually did uh, design Mr. Spock uh, on the basic idea of what he thought the Stoic was. Unfortunately, apparently, Roddenberry never read the Epictetus, uh, because otherwise he would have thrown a kind of a different character. Um, so, but Spock does actually embody a lot of the sort of misconceptions, uh, the common misconceptions about Stoicism. The Stoics did not seek to suppress emotions. I mean, we've heard something about this this morning, and there are other people talking about some of topics this afternoon. This is one of the recurring ones. They're like, you know, you go through life to a, to a sleep after, no, you don't. That's not the idea. Uh, you're not a Stoic with big capital S. That's, by the way, why I always write Stoic and Stoicism with capital S. Just like cynicism, for instance. You don't want to write cynicism with a small, small C because it means something completely different. It's not a philosophy. It's like you're being a cynical, cynical as you know, overly skeptical or unnecessarily skeptical of things, right? And pessimistic. What they did try to do was to transform them, to, uh, to control or reject, not give assent, to use Epictetus' words, 
to negative destructive emotions, but also to develop positive emotions. And the, the crucial word there is ascent. The goal, of course, one of the goals was to achieve inner calm, uh, what they called or what they, something similar to what the Epicureans uh, called Abraxas, or this Epictetus in modern version. Uh, Stoics distinguish, therefore, between um, what they call propathos, which is sort of similar to an instinctive reaction, the, the, the kind of thing you cannot avoid. It's, if you're a human being, you have that kind of immediate reaction, feeling, passion, whatever you want to call it. And eupathos, which are the feelings resulting from correct judgment. Okay. Um, as it turns out, this distinction is actually accepted, or something like this distinction is accepted in modern cognitive science. Uh, modern, uh, there's a difference between psychologists and neuroscientists in, in the way in which they think about emotions. But as it turns out, those two different ways of thinking you can be reconciled once, once you make the realization that, let's say we're talking about, let me give you an example, let's say we're talking about fear. So if you hear a loud noise and you jump, uh, uh, or if somebody points a gun at you and you, throw it and you freeze and so you start sweating and all that, that reaction is what a neuroscientist would call fear. And that is unavoidable. Cannot do without it. This is just a normal human human thing. Okay? And it, it, the Stoics never said that we should suppress those. Those are unsuppressed. Those are those are just natural human reactions. Period. You're going to have them. Uh, and today, biologists would say, and that's a good thing too, because a lot of the time that kind of instinctive reaction saves you from, from trouble. But what a psychologist would call fear, or is more likely to refer to as fear, is actually a longer Term kind of deep uh, feeling. You know, I'm afraid of a terrorist attack. It's not that I'm afraid of a terrorist attack because I see one happening now. It's I'm afraid in general, sort of the general idea of it. I think that that is a thing to be afraid of. That is a kind of judgment. That's not an immediate reaction to anything. It's a kind of judgment. It comes out of a, your, your, the way in which you think about certain stuff. So that's one way to understand what the Stoics were talking about when they were saying that we should give or withdraw assent from our emotions or our passions. If you look at it, if you have the, you know, if you have the leisure to actually be able to look at it, because if it is a fight or flight response, you fight or flight, period. Um, but if you do have the time to slow down, then you should look at it and say, well, should I be, I feel, I, my first reaction about this was fear. But should I actually be afraid of it? Is it really justified? If so, okay, then let me do something to deal with the problem. But more likely than not, I shouldn't be not afraid of this thing. And so let me deal with it in a sort of more rational way. Yeah. So you be nervous about overly positive um, emotional reactions as well, like negative emotions or emotion? Overly positive, react or positive uh, emotional reactions, could they be dangerous? If you ask Jules, uh, he would say no. He would say that ask me, I say yes, because um, those are, uh, they tend to uh, run away from you uh, in a similar way. In which, in the Stoics never, I don't think they dealt a lot with runaway positive emotions necessarily. Uh, they did deal with runaway negative emotions. You know, a lot of one of the things that was typical target of Stoic um, writing was anger. Okay? Unlike Aristotle, they thought anger is never a positive thing. 
uh, because I think, uh, Socrates calls it in fact temporary madness. Because what you do when you're angry is irrational, it tends to be an overreaction or the bad, the negative, the bad kind of reaction to whatever the situation is. So there may not be um, as much concern about positive emotions, right? but I think that any emotion that is too strong, it pulls in one way or the other, is unlikely to undermine your ability to rationally think about what you're doing and therefore possibly to lead you to things that are not necessarily in your interest. Yes, uh, just so you know, if, if they, uh, when they talk about the idea of dealing with emotions, of, you know, if, if they look into the story around the emotion, in other words, people say, like, So the question about sort of looking into emotion and then and asking yourself, where does the story come from? Why, why am I reacting this way? I also don't want to let go of your suggestion there, love. That's, that's the obvious one. It's like, oh, you mean I shouldn't be falling in love? Oh, no. Loving other people, loving is a positive emotion, first of all. And uh, loving other people, being concerned with other people, etc., etc., is something that makes us human. But we have heard today in the talk about Albert Ellis, that it can also run away as well. If you get, if you are in love with somebody to the point that you say, I cannot live without that person, I think you're sick. And I don't think that's a positive thing. I mean, that's something you need to get away from. Um, so uh, now, in that sense, I don't think that the, your, your ancient stories did much in that direction, but modern uh, kind of science does. And what I'm saying is that uh, there is a specific uh, book that I refer in, in my blog on, a, on an article about Nzaro, Epictetus was right about emotions, where it's a really nice, uh, so the modern interpretation is really highly competitive with the, with the stoic uh, take on, on emotions. That said, I mean, we need to be careful because there's always the danger that we read too much into what the ancients were doing. We need to remember, these people wrote 2,000 years ago. They had no knowledge of neurobiology, you know, cognitive science, evolutionary biology. It's a completely different culture, right. So, so one needs to be careful in, in, in you know, not going overboard and saying, oh yeah, they got everything right and that's the end of the story. The Stoics themselves say so. There's a nice quote by Seneca where he says, we don't have all the knowledge, but there's a lot of stuff, stuff that the next generation is going to discover, and if they discover something different, we should change our mind. Yeah, but I was asking if, if, they, if they dealt with a larger picture of, of the story rather than immediate thing fear or something. Yeah, in that sense, yes, because giving or uh, uh, sort of Giving or withdrawing assent from an emotional reaction is exactly going, trying to go to the backstory and say, okay, wait a minute now, why am I thinking that? Why am I behaving this way? Why, why am I reacting in this way? Am I justified? What kind of story am I telling myself about that? So yes, in that sense. We need to wrap it up um, because in a little bit, a few minutes, we have a keynote. So let me go through answering my own questions. Remember that I promised you that by the end you will get an answer to the question. There is, by the way, Albert Ellis and Victor Frankl, um, the invention, the inventor of logotherapy. Okay, so quickly, the answers to the questions are, in my opinion, from a stoic perspective, what is the meaning of life? To live with integrity, practicing virtue for the betterment of humanity. What is in my power to do? To give or withdraw assent from my impressions. Uh, what does it mean to be mindful, to live ethically, moment by moment? 
How should I deal with emotions, control the destructive ones, and develop the positive ones? How should I relate to others by treating them as part of your family circle? How should I prepare for adversity by reminding yourself of the dichotomy of control and that externalities are not important? What is my place in the cosmos? You are made of, uh, of matter like everything else, and you are subject to the same causal laws as everything else. I promise that I was going to answer all those questions, and now you know. Thanks very much for your attention. <laughs>